Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Hi, this is Till Luca. When I was looking for a publisher for a book I wanted to write, I was lucky enough to have had two offers, one from a huge international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring a small publisher in Scotland run by four great people. And I'm glad I chose them as not only did they help me make the books that I wanted to share with you, the advanced myofascial technique series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written, especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And Handspring also has a new instructional webinar series called Moved to Learn, which is a regular series of 45-minute segments featuring some of their amazing authors, including a recent one from Till. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out, and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. Thanks, Handspring, so much for supporting the Thinking Practitioner podcast. So uh, here we are today. Uh, What's happening, Till? What are we going to be talking about today? Whitney, we're, I'm thinking we should follow on after our last discussion on cervical issues and uh, look at upper back pain. And it, this continuing the theme of giving an overview of how we each might approach that, I want to know a little more about how you think about it and what you do to work with upper back, uh, upper back pain. And it seems pretty related to what we we're talking about last week in terms of the cervical. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, so, I think, so challenging and difficult to separate those two issues. They're so structurally and functionally related and seem to be probably the bread and butter of what so many soft tissue manual therapists deal with in their practice with with people coming to see them. So uh, that's not like a good thing for us to dive into uh, as, as we look at that. Um, I noticed, you know, when we were both sort of talking back and forth a little bit beforehand about some of the preparation for this and, and looking at some of the the studies and things that were out there, there was some question about, uh, you know, there's a lot of focus on the cervical region, a lot of focus on the lumbar region, and yeah. a lot of the research literature out there doesn't seem to be as much on the uh, on the thoracic region. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. What, what, what were you finding there? Yeah. Well, the same thing. Yeah, there's actually very little research on incidence and prevalence of thoracic spine pain, upper back pain. But when I poll clinic owners and therapists about what their clients are saying, I hear this one a lot. It's probably in the top five, certainly, complaints that I hear from people that their clients are requesting. So it's interesting there's been so little study on it. Uh, we, and so that brings up questions about how prevalent it is because there's been so little study. It's, uh, there's only two that I was able to find that even talked about prevalence of upper back pain. And one was a French study, Fouquet from 2015. He, he talked about how Amongst working age adults, 9% of men and 17% of women were reporting at least some upper back pain. And then a larger 2019 systematic review found uh, upper back pain to be most common in adolescents. This was like a study of studies. So I think there's about 20 studies that they pulled, uh, pulled from to get their statistics. But most common in adolescents, which is really interesting, especially female adolescents, and then they also identified some other risk factors to upper back pain, uh, being poor mental health, interestingly enough, and a little bit for backpack use. There was some disagreement and debate about that, but that seems to be a minor contributor as well. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that was interesting in that Briggs systematic review that I noticed too, and I see this as a, con- as a relatively common bias through a lot of the uh, orthopedic literature is when they were talking about potential causes for uh, pain in this region, there was a uh, what seemed to be a disproportionate emphasis on major structural problems of the spinal you know, structures themselves, Schurman's disease and spondylitis and you know, yes. the dysfunctions of the vertebral structures and very, very little mention of soft tissue pain in this region, which I think is probably a big factor for a vast majority of the people who seem to have uh, pain complaints in that area. Well, and then to take it back even one more step, the psychosocial contributors to pain are also pretty significant. And there is some evidence that thoracic spine pain in particular has bio, uh, rather psychosocial influences. Like there are, there do seem to be correlates like the mental health thing I mentioned and that it responds to things like client expectations, which I want to talk to you some about as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, so as we look at those things, you know, I think the the people that come in to see us, you know, have all kinds of of potential different complaints in there. And, and you mentioned a couple of the things that we want to be focusing on. Uh, and there are also some some important considerations of those things that we don't think about as often, you know, um, syst- uh, systemic disorders, for example, or, um, you know, uh, Ruth Warner just did an interesting podcast that was out from ABMP talking about a shoulder pl- uh, complaint, a case study with an individual with shoulder and upper back pain. Um, and she talked about running through all of her uh, usual evaluation procedures, and it turned out the person had a gallbladder issue. Um, yes. and so, you know, I think it's also important to keep in mind a lot of these things may, uh, come from the less common things, uh, as well. It's important for us to keep some in mind. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, what's, you know, what do we know about the causes, Whitney? What do you, what do you, what did you find in your reading of Briggs, et cetera, but what do you know in general? Well, you know, one of the things that I, I would say, certainly from the perspective of, of our work, looking predominantly at, at soft tissue relationships in there. You know, posture and uh, biomechanical stresses from uh, sitting for long periods, from the forward head posture, from, uh, you know, uh, you had mentioned some about the inactivity and deconditioning. Those things seem to be most related to the chronic types of soft tissue pain complaints that we see from from people. Uh, You know, I mean, I get this all the time from sitting for long periods or doing a lot of stuff at the computer. It's just like, oh man, my back, I just need to get in there and just really, you know, have somebody work on those tissues, that desire just for those things to be worked on a little bit, pressed, you know, pulled, stretched, whatever. Absolutely. And that seems to alleviate it a lot. So that would certainly tend to indicate that there is a significant degree of, of soft tissue dysfunction in there that gets alleviated by some type of, of manual manipulations. Or let's, or how about this? We can say that working the soft tissue helps. Yeah, I'll I'll go with you there. Yeah, and whether it's a soft tissue dysfunction, that's maybe where we start to debate. But no, I agree with you that a soft tissue approach can certainly change that experience of discomfort and pain that we're all getting from sitting in our chairs so long, yeah. taking podcasts and Zoom broadcasts and all that kind of stuff. That's right. Yeah. So here's a question that comes up. You know, when we talk about the the biopsychosocial elements of, you know, an upper back pain complaint, let's say. And, and we know yeah. there is so much, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit on this podcast and, you know, it's talked about a, a good bit now in, in the current literature, that uh, whole biopsychosocial role of everything yeah. that happens with the client therapist interaction in the treatment room and the soft lighting and the smells and all those things that we know make a person feel better so that just almost any type of hands-on manipulation helps. I know for me, getting yeah. down on the floor with a theracane and working on my own back, you know, without any of that stuff also really helps. So, you yes. know, it seems like, you know, I wonder like how much is that biopsychosocial environment uh, playing out when I do it, you know, with myself, you know, it's interesting. I, yes. Well, I bet it's in there. And I yeah. think, you know, of course the answer is always it's both, but I like this, uh, I like this topic a lot because it bends the rules in both directions. There do seem to be pretty clear postural contributions to your upper back being sore. We all know that from sitting around too long. Yeah. And there seem to be pretty clear psychosocial contributors. Like when you do get a a practitioner who really gets what you want and gives what you want, the results are better than if you get a practitioner who doesn't give you what you want, even if they think they know best, even if there's a sound a therapeutic a clinical rationale for what the treatment plan they're following, for example. So let me back up just so a moment and ask you to sure. kind of elaborate a little bit on, on what, give us some examples of, you know, when we talk about psychosocial elements of, of the uh, upper back pain, what are we, what are we talking about here? What are some kinds of examples or ideas of what might be playing into that? Well, one, I mean, the, the one that showed up in the literature was a correlation to poor mental health it, as a risk factor. If your mental health has, if you have a mental health diagnosis, then you're more likely to have upper back pain. That's interesting by itself. But let's put that aside for a second and just think about what that means in practice. Uh, one of the biggest ways we see the psychosocial impact of what we do is through client expectations what they think is going to help, what they think, how long they think they're going to have the issues, what they expect to get from their sessions, the amount of credibility they assign to you, all those kind of questions there seem to you know, help work with all pain. But in this one in particular, uh, because it's a general, you could say complaint, because there's so many things that play into it, I know we're going to go through some of those as well, 
it often means that as a nonspecific complaint, it's almost hard to know where to start. And yet, I think because of that, if we leverage our clients' expectations, it's as simple as asking them, what do you think might help? That's going to give us a really big clue and a really big head start on doing something that is likely to satisfy what they want to try and feel. And there's some pretty good evidence that the thing that they most think is going to help is the one that gives them the most satisfaction and lasting results. Yeah. So, you know, back in the early days when um, when I was in massage school, we were um, there was a you know fair amount of uh, kind of emphasis, and this is something probably you know you're quite familiar with because I think you had even done some specific study in that area of like uh, the Hakomi body work and Ron Kurtz and a lot of those uh, um, psychologically oriented body work mm-hmm. practices, for example, that uh, would tend to draw these correlations between certain body postures and emotional states and things like that, and. I'm, you know, not so much along the lines of saying that there's a really clear kind of cause effect type of thing. I'm not sure I buy into that whole idea, but I certainly do think that there's a potential for relationships there. So what do you think in terms of like that whole idea that a person with, let's say, not so great self-esteem or or poor sort of uh, world outlook that tends to kind of move through the world with this let's say slumped forward kind of head posture, not feeling, you know, good about things. Does that potentially play into the, the upper back pain complaint significantly? Can we draw any kind of lines there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, with a lot of caveats, absolutely. With a lot of caveats, if your horizon, if your habitual horizon, the place you look is down, that's going to demand different things from your back and they're Mm -hmm. going to get sore after a while. Yeah. There is a whole mood involved in looking down. There's a whole mood shift you get if you look up at the horizon. I mean, you can try it right now as you're listening. Mm-hmm. If you just let your gaze drift up a little bit, the world opens up. Your sense yeah. of possibility opens up. There's a whole lot of, there's different cognitive processes that kick in. So yeah, our, our emotional state, our predisposition towards certain ideas, our level of imaginative uh, function and creativity is all related to what we're doing with our body. Those are all body things. That's why you get such good ideas when you walk. Mm-hmm. You know, we do something with our body. It stimulates emotional and cognitive processes. So no question about that. Now, does that, the caveats, does that posture mean a particular thing that we can say predictably is true across different people? I don't know. I don't know if there's a, a dictionary of postures that you can look up someone's mental issue based on their posture. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, I think it's pretty individual. And I think it's a strategic approach more than a diagnostic approach, you could mm-hmm. say. Yeah. And l- l- probably like so many things, we have to be aware of the trap, which is that there's there's potential relationships there and possibly some uh, level of involvement, but be wary of the trap of assuming that you can simplify things into uh, you know, that whole idea of like, oh, you have anger stored in your elbow or, you know, because you have this, you know, previous thing in your history, that means your, you know, your psoas is going to be tight. You know, that, that sort of simplistic cause effect thing, I think, can, can get us a little bit off track sometimes. Well, and there's, it, the, it's, hmm, it's also, it's also tricky in terms of scope of practice, obviously, too. Yeah. I mean, we we don't diagnose physical complaints, and we shouldn't diagnose uh, psychosocial or emotional issues either. We shouldn't be telling people what they have or what they have going on. Yeah. Should be, you know, working strategically to help them get what they want out of our session within the scope of the tools we have. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot. And yeah, so it's great to keep in mind that uh, certainly outlook and habits and attitudes are going to influence this. And I mean, the upside, Whitney, is that we, like I said, we can use this as practitioners to really create, to really follow, say, a client-centered approach in this case makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Even though, oh, here's the paradox too. Uh, It's not just saying to the client, where does it hurt? Let me press there. It is thinking big picture because there's lots of things like the way you sit in your chair, which is really your hip joint mobility or the awareness of your pelvis and sitting and your spinal adaptability, say the curves you have in your spine, the mobility you have all the way up your spine, your diaphragm awareness, how much you're willing or able to breathe into your midsection and how much of that goes forward and how much of that goes back. You know, I'm going up the body, but there's something at each level that can contribute to that upper back pain. 
So would yeah. you tend to, like, as you're working with a client that has, let's say, comes in complaining of upper back pain, would you tend to go through these things as sort of an educational process with them about, well, let's look at these various different factors and see how they may all be contributing? Because my assumption is a lot of this would be things that somebody wouldn't naturally think of to be related uh, to what's going on with their upper back. Yeah. It could be as simple as asking, when do you notice it? Mm-hmm. And that gives me some clues. Yeah. End of the day. Okay. What have you been doing all day? It could be, do you feel it now as we're sitting here talking about it? And if they do, I might have them play right there in the chair with something like uh, rolling their pelvis back a little bit, rolling it forward a little bit and fishing or looking for connections they might make between how that feels when their pelvis is in different positions. Yeah. But certainly I'm going to want to rule those out for myself in terms of my clinical approach. Is their hip joint, are their hip joints and pelvis mobile enough to give a base underneath their thorax? For their upper back to be easy. Mm-hmm. Working. Yeah. Because then the assumption sort of is uh, they've got greater capability to adjust to the new and ideal postures, potentially if there's movement throughout. Kind of being oh, the key. <laughs> yes and no. Uh, ideal posture, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, adjust, yes. At least in my point of view. Yeah. I'm not trying to get them all stacked up like blocks in our old Rolf yeah. logo. Yeah. I'm trying to help them be adaptable enough that they can adjust the different demands and uh, sensitive enough to their own bodies that they notice when they're uncomfortable and they move. They do something about it. Yeah. So let me backtrack for just a moment to something you said, because I do think that's a predominant theme um, in numerous professions, uh, certainly in the structural integration world of old, that was a theme, but I see it a lot in the physical therapy realm and uh, some in the chiropractic world, a lot, and some a lot in the massage therapy world, of this emphasis on that ideal posture and that ideal position and structural kind of alignment. Um, I think you and I probably both lean more toward the direction of freedom of movement, um, probably trumping some of the focus on uh, static postural alignment factors. But um, that's difficult for a lot of people to do who have relatively sedentary jobs, for example, or positions where they have to sit in a position for a long time. How do we, how do we get people to work with that idea when they have to be stationary for so long? Well, I question the have to. The first huh? thing I do. Because, yeah, absolutely, being stationary is the issue. It's, it's a lack of variety that ends up making things not feel good yeah. and cause more problems down the line. Mm-hmm. So there's, uh, I think there's a lot of cultural support for different options at work. It's for those who are at work, when there is a, a socially prescribed way to work, like are you in a cubicle, are you in a chair, there's usually a lot of support within organizations now for trying different things like standing, walking, trying different locations even. But especially a lot of people working at home, they have a lot of control over their environment. Now, maybe they haven't taken the time to really set it up. But yeah, take, uh, having the option to work in different positions, having a chair that adjusts, different distances, different heights, having a monitor that you don't have to always be looking down at, that you can actually get at eye level or even vary. Mm-hmm. And then doing, when you can, doing work and conversations and stuff like on the move, actually taking your conversations for a walk. Yeah supposed to sit at the desk. I've noticed a solution for me that seems to work is having a lot of animals because it's like, all right, I got to go take the dogs out. Okay. This bird needs to be fed. Okay. All right. The cat's wanting to do something. It's like, there's all these mental, what I view perceptually as mental interruptions for, you know, taking me away from what I'm doing. But I noticed physically and biomechanically when I have to get up and move around, it helps, no, you know. Right, it, uh, right. I think uh, I miss my dog. My dog was my, for a lot of people, was my self-care timer. She would let me yeah. know when it was time for a walk. When I'd miss it, I'd be sucked into the. <laughs> That's right. Computer, yeah. but no, she didn't. Yeah. She didn't miss it. Right. So, um, well, I want to um, look to at, at another couple of things around here as we talk about some of these um, uh, postural and structural issues. You know, there, there are some. Um, models that are out there that I think um, have become highly uh, incorporated into many people's perspectives and and ideas and just want to kind of hear what your thoughts are on that. We talked just briefly before our outset here about some of the things like the the model of the upper cross syndrome that Vladimir Yanda had uh, Mm -hmm. proposed and has just gotten 
you know, if you read some of the discussions about this, it's interesting um, them talking about the fact that this model has become adopted by personal trainers, physiotherapists, chiropractors, massage therapists, everybody, because it's something that everybody kind of can can fit into their own particular model. But there hasn't been a real strong support of research for these ideas that were originally in this model in terms of the actual biomechanics and physiology of some muscles being tight and some muscles being weak uh, around yes. that. And and uh, so uh, just curious, you know, your thoughts, I think you said you mentioned you you hadn't been, you know, focusing on that so much um, as of late. Oh, yeah. upper cross syndrome. It's a, it's a, it's a really, like you said, an intuitive model. It's a very, very common model mm-hmm. where you have certain muscles that are tight and certain muscles that are weak. And that uh, from a manual therapy point of view, we would focus on the muscles that are tight if we don't, if the head's out in front of the body. Uh, no, I don't take that approach because for a few reasons, uh, even before the, you know, the current debate came out about there not being a lot of evidence for that approach, it didn't seem to get me the results I got uh, when I focused on movement instead, when I focused on awareness instead. Mm-hmm. To really get someone to have all those options of movements and then have them be able to feel what's going on in their body put me way ahead of a, any kind of model where I was trying to passively change the static position of, that someone was in, say. Yeah. So it's, it doesn't really fit with the dynamic way that you know I'm making myself think about bodies and posture and pain. It's more of a static, okay, so let's trace out on the body what uh, which an anatomical structures could be involved. The beauty of it is it's a clear map. You go, oh, work here. Yeah. You know, push, dummy, PhD model, push here, dummy. And, I like uh, that. <laughs> I hadn't heard that before. So yeah. I'm going to put that in my next book. Great. <laughs> <laughs> right. we're, we're on to postgraduate stuff now because we're going, you know, it's not as simple as push here, dummy. Yeah. Or that gets us started. But what ends up really making the difference is how much the patient or client incorporates it into their own bodies and their own awareness, their own values and their own life. Yeah. How much do you those things? Yeah. And, you know, what you were saying here too really reinforces something that, that I, uh, you know, a common thread that I hear throughout the massage therapy profession when people talk about structural work and, you know, working from a structural perspective. Um, it's, uh, again, a perspective that I just, uh, I don't agree with because I haven't seen that play out both practically in the clinical environment nor physiologically. It does really not make a great deal of sense, but the whole idea of somebody coming in and we do this postural analysis and put them in front of a grid chart and say, okay, you've got the forward head posture and that's why you have back pain. So I'm going to work on your, uh, you know, anterior chest muscles. So they open up and, you know, relax all those other things. And then your posture will be fixed and you will be pain free. But that to me, doesn't work if the person goes out and repeats the the dysfunctional motor patterns that got them there in the first place. They can just go mess that stuff up in the car on the way home. Um, uh, so unless it's really reinforcing a change in movement and change in you know postural awareness sorts of things, the whole idea of just manipulating the soft tissue and then that somehow or other changes posture just doesn't seem to doesn't seem to to, to work a lot. That's a leap. That the tissues don't seem to be as plastic as we had hoped yeah. and thought for years. The good news, of course, is that the brain is even more plastic than we realized, and you can really learn and feel and change uh, movement patterns when, if you, as you get inside of them. And hands-on work is a great adjunct for getting inside of your body and getting inside your movement patterns. Yeah, really increasing those options and the proprioception. Which takes us back to that bumper sticker saying that you said numerous issues ago, I can't remember, or episodes ago when you said that the uh, most important tissue that we're likely to be working on is the one between the ears. So, uh, you know, so that certainly plays into into that concept a good deal as well. Well, how about anything else around your therapeutic considerations? I got to go through my bullet points there. Do you have any others that you think are important when addressing this? Yeah. So one other thing that I want to kind of pick on again as, as a as a piece that I see as, as a, a frequent misconception. I, I hear this a lot in the massage therapy world of um, the idea, for example, that we see we see these you know sort of postural conditions that seem to accompany the upper back pain frequently, which is the the forward head posture, the forward rolled shoulders. And this idea that people will say, well, 
don't focus on working on somebody's rhomboids in their upper back because you're going to over lengthen those muscles and you'll make it worse. And I want to emphasize this idea that you are not going to make a neuromuscular pattern worse by doing soft tissue manipulation of those, of those muscles. And a lot of times what you might do by not working those areas, because what the person on the table is likely to say is, please work on my upper back. That's what hurts. And Mm -hmm. by not aligning with their therapeutic desire of what gives them the sensations of relief, I think we make a big mistake by trying to foist this, um, biomechanical model of we're going to over lengthen the already lengthened tissues. And that just uh, doesn't really happen. So I've, I'm right with you in concept and also in practice, there was, you know, from a upper cross model, you might not go work on those long erectors and quote long and quote erectors, but so many times, uh, in fact, the technique I'm going to offer a sample technique the technique involves actually working on someone in a lengthened position. It's breaking all of those yonder rules about that, but people feel fantastic and they move better and they, and it helps. Yeah. It's like sometimes when we break the rules, we get all kinds of good results. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's kind of the, the lesson and takeaway from that is, you know, what's, what's really going to work and what are they, what are they feeling that is going to help them, uh, feel better and be able to move more freely. Certainly doesn't say don't work those other areas like the anterior pec muscles and things like that, that might be somewhat chronically shortened in those positions. But I don't think we need to have this fear about like, well, we can't work on the upper back because we're going to over lengthen it and and make the thing worse. It's just uh, not, not going to happen there. I'm thinking of a question I get a lot from participants in the, in the trainings and maybe you get it too. How do you answer the person that says, okay, so how much time then do I spend on what the client wants and how much time do I spend on the rest of my approach? How do you, how do you answer that kind of question? The amount of time that it needs, you know, so, um, that's that's okay. So if it's them coming and saying, Hey, my upper back hurts, would you just stick your elbow into my erectors there? Yeah. How do you know how much time it needs until they're like ready to go home or what? Yeah, I mean that that is a, a, a certainly a valid question, and I tend to get uh, I tend to focus those answers on when do I feel like the tissue appropriately responds in a way that um, the palpation sense tells me we've made some significant changes along with what they report. Um, I'm not a big fan of just coming in and diving in with deep elbows and, and, you know, sharp spikes and things like that, even though there are people who really want that kind of thing. I think that is somewhat, um, a bit jarring for the nervous system. And I think there's a lot of benefit in, in working your way through that. And unfortunately, some of that takes time to do that appropriately, but I think you get a more significant lasting neurophysiological effect from doing that. So, um, enough things to really make some significant contributions. And then, you know, that also might mean that that incorporates work on the neck and the upper extremity and the low back and hip and pelvis region as well to get that whole system, you know, moving, pliable, et cetera. So you, you do a combination of tissue response and client report and you leave time for the big picture. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like it. But that's, I mean, that's, that question, when I hear that question too, I think it's not just about timing. They're asking about prioritization. How much of this is me following them and how much of this is me uh, doing the models or maps or strategies I want to bring in? Yeah. I don't, I don't know how to answer that one either, but that's, I mean, that's, that's the big question when we talk about a client-centered approach and different kind of models we might have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here's something too that, that comes into this. That this is part of the whole client dynamic because you might have – you know, on the one hand, a client who comes in who really is envisioning themselves as the passive recipient of therapy and wants to be told what needs to happen in the treatment room in order to make themselves better. And then you have oh, yeah, the, have yeah, what's that? I'm kidding you. I said I had one of those. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and then you have the um, proactive, uh, highly participating individual who, you know, wants to do their part and really sort of direct, here's what needs to happen to me kind of thing. So obviously the, I think the treatment approach is going to differ, um, somewhat in terms of how directed you are with with each one of those different people. 
Yeah, for sure. For how how participatory people are on their own, and then how successful my efforts are at enticing them into participation are as well. Yeah, because uh, not everyone starts that way, but a lot of people shift there. But then there's a certain number of clients who just want to receive, and that's also can be just fine. Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to come back and look at some. Um, sort of approaches around technique stuff here in just a moment. We're going to take just a quick break to uh, hear from our uh, sponsor, and then we'll come back and we'll uh, look at some uh, treatment strategies here. ABMP is proud to sponsor the Thinking Practitioner podcast. All massage therapists and body workers can access free ABMP resources and information on the coronavirus and the massage profession at abmp.com slash COVID-19, including sample release forms, PPE guides, and a special issue of Massage and Body Work magazine, where Whitney Lowe and I are frequent contributors. For more, check out the ABMP podcast, available at abmp.com slash podcasts, or wherever you prefer to listen. Great. And thank you, ABMP, so much for supporting The Thinking Practitioner. And uh, we were talking just before our break about some uh, other th- various different causative factors here, and then uh, looking at what we might eventually do. So what are some of those other things? There's a few other things that we haven't mentioned that um, you'd called attention to that we might want to consider. Things like, you know, rib articulations and some, uh, you know, other things, you know, uh, the thoracolumbar fascia, shoulder involvement, you know, the nerve roots in this area. We don't hear very much yeah. about nerve root compression in the thoracic region. What are some, are there some other things that we want to kind of think about as possible causes also? Okay. So we talked about spine, hip, and cervical adaptability. If those things aren't adaptable, then you can't sit in a position or you can't change your position enough to move. So I just think about that whole topic. We talked about that. We should mention shoulder structures because sometimes the traps or the rhomboids themselves can be sensitized or tired or fatigued and painful. But sometimes too, if the shoulder girdle in general isn't able to adapt around your thorax, it can reinforce or immobilize the uh, the back and thorax into a pattern that gets uncomfortable after a while. So a lot of times, just general shoulder girdle adaptability, especially where it differentiates with the rib cage, can be really helpful. The thoracolumbar fascia is interesting. It's the it, it's the complicated structure. It's lots of wrappings that surround all of your erectors, all the way from the base of your skull down to your sacrum. And uh, it's got a lot of nerve endings in it. It's got a lot of those nociceptive free nerve endings that can generate a signal that your brain interprets as pain. And they've been shown in the low, they've been studied quite a bit in the low back and shown to project onto areas that of the brain that do respond emotionally or with an unpleasant response to the signal there. So they seem to have a particularly upsetting type of pain. And the same is probably true, I would guess, I don't know of any research, as we take that same fascial structure on up to the upper back, there are lots of nerve endings in its various layers. And by the way, more than the erectors themselves, the erector muscle tissue itself has far fewer nerve endings than the fascia that surrounds them. On average in the body, the, the number that was being quoted for a long time, the six times difference. There's some a recent uh, update that Robert Schleif just published that says maybe it's even more that the in general fascia has about six times more free nerve endings than muscle tissue per se. That's a really interesting relationship there. What do you suppose uh, is the rationale there for such a larger percentage in the fascial tissue compared to in the muscular tissue? The rationale, like biological function? Yeah. um, It certainly seems like, you know, there'd be a really predominant role for having a lot of sensory receptors in the muscle tissue for proprioceptive functions and things like that. But the more we're learning about some of these fascial tissues, the more we're we're kind of getting a sense that they're playing a primary role in kind of um, being the, the, the ears, the, the tuning in of what's happening uh, mechanically, proproceptive ears, so to speak, if, if you can call well, it that. Yeah, fascia as a sensory organ is Robert Schleip's phrase. Yeah. And you know, we should mention that this isn't, isn't universally agreed upon. This is uh, There is some controversy about that, but from that point of view, which is has some plausibility in my eyes, the amount of nerve endings in the fascia is even more than the muscles because it's transmitting so many forces and it's perceiving glide mm-hmm. and it's monitoring uh, all sorts of metabolic uh, processes as well. 
there's quite a bit of innervation in muscles because it has to both motorically control what's happening there, but also sense stretch. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that a lot of the stretch receptors, like the Golgi tendon organs, are actually in the tendons. They're not in the muscle cell per se. Mm -hmm. So that the, it is the connected tissue connections that end up being the most efficient places to monitor those mechanical forces as well. Yeah. Fascinating. And then that kind of gets us back into looking at, you know, what, what happens from the, the treatment standpoint? Are we attempting to make a direct intervention on these tissues or, or what is it that we're specifically trying to do? Because one of the things oh. just, you know, that I find so kind of challenging and frustrating in dealing with these pain problems in the upper back is they, they don't tend to fit into some of the, the neat categories that we sometimes like to create around, well, what do we think is the problem here and what should we do about it? It just seems to be a lot more generalized discomfort and, um, you know, pain complaints that people have that, that don't seem to be highly specific for targeting and creating a targeted response. So when you think about techniques and approaches that you like to use to address this, Kind of what what comes up as sort of the the kinds of things that, that guide the idea of of the techniques that you would like to use to address that. Well, you've mentioned this before too, but that careful intake conversation and some movement uh, tests or some movement explorations or some description about when the pain sensitivity is there that'll give me a lot of clues. Sometimes they say, "Oh yes, after I sit in my chair all day, that's mm -hmm. really clear." that we can work with the chair, we can work with the desk setup, we can work with varying their posture. But other times it can be a really specific movement. And that movement, like you said, can suggest a particular target tissue. You called it a nociceptive driver in our last mm -hmm. episode. Yeah. That like, let's say, you know, every time I drop my chin to my test chest, I get a pain down between my shoulder blades. That gives me a lot of information. Yeah. Yeah. Both about the perhaps the mechanism that's irritating it, but then also about the specific structures that might be sensitized. Mm -hmm. And I would way. advocate too, just from a from a, an assessment standpoint of why it's valuable to look at that specific movement with, is that done in a vertical position with the head dropping forward with the client doing it themselves? Or does that same thing happen when they are horizontal and you are passively lifting their head into a flexed position to kind of get an indication of, are we talking about, you know, eccentric activity of those extensor muscles doing that? Or is this simply a passive movement of elongating some tissue that's causing that kind of irritation as well? Okay. Let's say you find a difference. It hurts in one position, not the other. Do you use that inductively? In other words, do you think through what is uh, contracting eccentrically, concentrically, or do you use it empirically or deductively? Do you put them on the table in that position and work them in the position of pain? I would say probably the former in in trying to tease apart what uh, well perhaps some of both actually you know using it uh, as a method for trying to tease apart and identify is there a target nociceptive driver there is there a target tissue that seems to be the most aggravated and in particular too is it the same pain sensation that they feel because sometimes they'll say you know yeah that hurts but it's not quite the same thing that i feel and so maybe there's a couple different things that are going on there that we may want to tease apart so you identify the tissue the quality counts for quite a bit and then do you work them in the sensitive position or do you work them in a non-sensitive position well i think the goal is to work towards alleviating the sensitivity of those kinds of positions. So I would tend to work towards the things that give them relief, that feel good, that uh -huh. are reinforcing a good sensation, and then sort of bump up against the edge of that yeah. discomfort to see if we can to gradually move it in that direction. But I'd also like say that there's a caveat there is that if in that process we identify some things that tend to point in a direction other than a primary soft tissue complaint, like if there's something that seems to be indicating major structural issues, spinal structural issues, or, or you know, nerve root involvement or something like that, then I might be also thinking along the lines of this person might be needing to see somebody else other than me for some component of this as well. Yeah, sure. And we got a list of stuff that we're going to mention at the end to, you know, rare, but uh, good pathological consider yeah. consideration be aware of. Yeah. I like what you said about bumping up to the edge. Cause I think that's similar to my general approach too. I want to find out exactly where and how and when and what way it hurts. And then I want to play at the edges of that. 
mm-hmm. with that idea of increasing adaptive range, increasing pain adaptability around the sensitivity, and probably increasing, there's probably some tissue effects, maybe enhanced uh, differentiation or glide, that kind of thing. But it's if we don't find the edge, we often don't change it. Yeah. And yet if we start, yeah, if we start in the painful zone, there's too much guarding. We don't get enough of the safety signals going on to really help someone change the pattern either. Yeah, right. So we were talking about doing something uh, a little new and different today with our podcast of talking about some technique approaches and things that we might do to address this. And you had a, a, a technique, speaking of edges, I believe you were calling it the over-the-edge technique, so yeah. uh, that you want to share and talk about a little bit with, with uh, some ways to approach this. Tell me about that. Sure. No, and we're actually going to try it as a handout, too, that you can go get on the show notes. But in this technique, if I had to pick one, in other words, if there's one technique, this is one that addresses so many components of what we've talked about that it's it's the one I'm going to uh, hold up as the poster child for this particular symptom. Mm-hmm. And that the over-the-edge technique is simply uh, draping your client over the edge of your table so that their head's hanging down below the table. And they got to find a comfortable place on the table for the edge. Their arms are usually much more comfortable when they're up on the table and the edge of the table is a few inches below their chin, so about you know, just below the clavicles. And you can adjust that with pillows or body cushions and such to make sure it's comfortable on their chest. Okay, so let me back up for just one second. Are they supine or prone? Uh, prone, face okay. down. Okay. Yeah, so they're face down. Thank you. Face down over the edge of the table, head hanging below the table, comfortable on the edge there. Mm-hmm. Now, we're not going to leave them there really long because you can imagine the blood's running to their head and forget it. Don't do this if they have any kind of sinus issues going on, as well as a couple of medical considerations like glaucoma, mm-hmm. uncontrolled high blood pressure, stroke history. Those are you know, cautions, contraindications against putting their head lower than their body. But for most of us, hanging down, hanging your head off the table for a couple, three minutes is just fine. But what that does is it puts the spine into some flexion. It asks all of the uh, structures along the back there that we've mentioned, the erectors, the thoracolumbar fascia, et cetera, to glide in such a way as they would in flexion. It asks the facet joints to open because the facet joint capsules and the joints themselves can be a source of nociception. Mm-hmm. And the costal vertebral joints are now opened up as the ribs open out away from, sorry, the, the spine, the transverse processes open out away from the ribs. So there's just things have been opened up in a way that allow me to start superficially. So I might start with really literally skin work to make sure all the skin glides easily and then work down layer by layer to make sure that each of these things we've mentioned has some mobility and has some comfort. Uh, As my clients talking to me, as I'm checking in, how's the pressure, how's the direction, is this good or is this good? Those kind of questions. So you're doing some soft tissue manipulation with them in this position to try to enhance the, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the position, it's a positional technique. I put them in the position and then I'll work through the layers in their back, checking each structure in turn for mobility and sensitivity. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. I, that sounds like one of those things that I could envision trying with self-treatment too <laughs> next time my upper back yeah, is it's bothering me. Well, so. And then, so then, you know, that, like I said, that violates Yanda's idea of what's already long. Yeah. So, and it does feel good to do some sort of counterbalancing to mm-hmm. that as well. And it maybe that's just a bow to my heritage where we wouldn't just work it in one direction, but then often I'll have them face up or supine and maybe a little bolster under the upper spine. So a gentle opening in the front mm-hmm. to help get the sense of spaciousness, both in front and in yeah. back. Yeah. That sounds like a great strategy. And, and uh, you know, again, going in the direction of what people will say. I mean, I can just, as you describe that, I was just like, oh man, I can see that feeling so good. Um, you know, that mm-hmm. sensation of like, this really helps and generates a proprioceptive sense of improvement and doing some things that will really feel good. And that's that's such a powerful treatment strategy over and above what we think biomechanically, you know, about what we're trying to do with these with each person. I think I was listening to a podcast the other day. I think it was Chad Cook who was being interviewed, and he said about the about basically the um, debates around manual therapy. And he says one of the biggest thing manual therapy does is it can help you relieve pain for the client and show them that there's hope, mm-hmm. show them that, that their pain can change. So that's one thing. And then when they when you do something that feels good and makes that back feel better, 
not only do they have some hopefulness, but they're, you're building that rapport and building that essentially that therapeutic alliance and that healing scenario where in that context, they're more available, more open to your suggestions about maybe changing the monitor height or getting up and moving around a little bit yeah. more. Yeah. One of the biggest factors in quote, patient compliance, that is how much patients follow their doctor's recommendation is rapport between the patient and the practitioner. So not, no better way to make help rapport than to relieve their pain. Yeah. So these are some uh, important strategies, I think, for so many of us, because, uh, you know, it's interesting at the very beginning when we were talking about this, the um, sort of lack of, of focus and emphasis in some of the research literature on uh, thoracic spine pain and, and pain conditions in this region because there is so much emphasis on cervical and lumbar problems. Yet, uh, certainly in our fields, um, so, so many people who come in, um, it's just almost uncommon for you to not have somebody saying, oh, my upper back, you know, needs attention. Uh, and certainly from like, I remember day one in massage school when we first started doing work on each other, everybody's kind of like, oh, work on my upper back, you know, because that's kind of like what so many of us uh, grapple with a great deal, I think, just structurally, mechanically, and just what what our lives tend to create for us. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's right. The, ha the heaven of having something to do really thorough back work yeah. down your erectors, down your thoracolumbar fascia, just working that through. There's nothing like it. Yeah. We should, we should, uh, are we ready to mention our pathologies, you think? Yeah, I was going to say, we've got a couple other things that you wanted to mention in here of other things to look for. So what are other things should we be potentially thinking about as other possibilities that might be causing some of those uh, pain complaints? There's a lot of things that can make your upper back hurt. And they, like you said, it's good to be aware of those. Uh, fibromyalgia, Lyme disease, infections, tumors, Nerve root irritation is more rare in the thoracic spine, but it can happen for sure. Uh, the, the complications around osteoporosis, secondary osteoporosis, you could have uh, uh, vertebral body fractures or a kyphotic position of the spine as a result of those that can just cause discomfort and pain over time, as well as uh, osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. Those are all other conditions that can result in upper back pain. So it's good to be aware of those, especially some of the ones that should have a medical uh, primary care person really monitoring them. So things like uh, symptoms of fever, headache, or a change in severity are reasons that, to really recommend someone go get an updated medical eval for any of those things going on. Yeah. And also I noticed in the Briggs paper too, they were mentioning the <clears throat> a lot of these symptoms of upper thoracic um, or thoracic spinal pain were more prevalent or frequently more prevalent in young people uh, and in adolescents in particular. And there are some structural conditions that also uh, uh, do appear more frequently, like Schurman's disease, which happens to be a, a, a condition affecting the growth of the, the vertebral body of the spine, causing structural problems. And there are some of those are uh, other considerations as well. Um, mm -hmm. One other thing I wanted to just mention in here, um, in talking with people, um, and I was also interested to see how much this did not appear in some of the literature when they were talking about some of the populations that experience this differently. Uh, there's very, very little mention of the, well, there was, first of all, there was mention of increased likely or increased incidence of uh, thoracic spinal pain in women compared to men. Yeah. But I didn't see yeah. very much mention about the role of heavier breast tissue being something that um, is a role for uh, biomechanical stresses in that region. And I think that affects a lot of women, um, in particular with, with chronic upper back pain, is, is something to think about as well. That's a good point. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And what else? You mentioned some of the other uh, symptoms and uh, things that we would be potentially looking at there. So these are all factors that we would want to think about in the big picture uh, as possibilities to, to, to be screening. Yeah, that's right. Do we, did we miss any of yours? Did we get everything in there that you I wanted to mention? That's kind of the other things. Well, well one other thing we kind of touched on earlier, this is not a real common thing, but I, I had a couple of interesting case study instances involving uh, the potential rib head subluxation. And that's something that also may come about with some pretty severe upper thoracic pain close into the spine. Yeah. Um, that's another thing to, to, interestingly, that 
particular pathology is even somewhat controversial in, in some of the the orthopedic literature about whether or not it really happens with the degree of frequency or incidence that it does. But uh, Are you referring to the controversy around mechanism? I don't think anybody's denying that people get pain there. It's more like, what is the explanation? Yeah. Is it a rib that's, quote, out, yeah. or is it just a rib that's sensitized exactly. somehow? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think it's just important for us to remember that those costovertebral articulations are synovial joints with joint capsules and a richly innervated uh, capsular tissue. And so you know, slight uh, malposition things or stresses at those very sort of delicate joints that are not structurally very sound could certainly be a cause for pain, especially if it's um, along the uh, region of the spine close to where those those joints are located. And that would, yeah. because uh, I think a lot of people don't tend to think about that as a possibility. I had a, a, a client at one time who had what we uh, suspected eventually to be that very problem go into the emergency room because she was having extreme difficulty breathing. Uh, and they were, you know, saying that they suspected, you know, a heart attack and, and all kinds of other strange things. And nobody began to really look at some structural problems. And then she went to a chiropractor, you know, a couple of days later and they said they thought she had a rib uh, head problem and they did a adjustment procedure and like, boom, it's done, you know? So, uh, many stories, yeah. So many stories, like yeah. That. Which, of course, you mentioned the debate is are used in the argument that says, "Well, look, her rib was out. I put it in, and they were better." There's there are so many stories of people feeling better once their ribs are mobilized, which is the the mental discipline I try to have for myself, just in my own thinking and my own teaching. I I'm pretending like malposition isn't a thing. I don't know if it is or not. Yeah, but I know that that mobility is a thing. And I know that if I get things moving, they feel better, and especially moving in the ways that feel good. Yeah. If they're moving in directions that feel bad, that's worse. But if I help them move in the ways that feel good, then that makes them better. So yeah, there's a lot of ways to mobilize the rib heads, like you mm -hmm. said. They can really change someone's upper back pain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, well, that sounds good. And I'm sure we can revisit some other facets of this uh, topic in some of our future episodes as well. But this is a, a good sort of... Uh, introduction into looking at uh, a very common complaint that lots of um, soft tissue manual therapists are going to be dealing with on a regular basis here. So, yeah, and hopefully, gave you some ideas to go try for sure. Go download that handout, etc. Yeah, that sounds good. So, we'd like to say uh, thank you very much to all the listeners who hung in there and listened to, uh, to our discussions today. Hope you get some good beneficial aspects out of it. And a big thank you to our sponsors as well. Uh, we really appreciate your supporting the Thinking Practitioner podcast. Well, how about those show notes, Whitney? Where do people get those? They can get the show notes on thethinkingpractitioner.com. And we did mention today a, a handout that we had have available uh, highlighting this technique. So head on over to uh, Tilt. Where can they find that handout on your site over there? advanced-trainings.com. If you just click the the uh, podcast link up at the top of any page, advanced-trainings.com. And I should definitely mention our upcoming Spine Principles class. We're doing another one of our live online hybrid training starting early September, and you can register up through mid-September. The discount is late August. Check it out on our site too, advanced-trainings.com. Exciting combination of live lecture and small group discussion looking at spine ribs and low back issues in this case. How about yours, Whitney? And great. They can also find stuff over on our site related to the podcast at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And as always, uh, please send us uh, questions or input, anything you'd like for us to know at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com. And uh, where can people find you uh, out on the social media world, Till? Just at my name, Till Luca, T-I-L-L-U-C-H-A-U. How about you, Whitney? Yeah, same thing, uh, Whitney Lowe. Uh, people can find me there on social as well. And uh, please do follow us on uh, Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. Share the news and tell a friend, uh, let other people know that it's out there and available. And we hope to keep having some interesting discussions that will uh, help you all out. Thanks, Whitney. That sounds good. I'll look forward to it. And we'll see you again in two weeks.